Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Today, we will finish our review of the preamble of the Constitution. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And Sheila Guerin, thank you for your support. Mike Gerard will get us started. Before we dive right in, let's revisit the wondrous language of the preamble. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In prior episodes, we reviewed the part of the preamble that said we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. And now it's time to review the remainder of the preamble. The next clause is to provide for the common defense. During the debates of the Constitution, many were very concerned about the viability of the United States if a stronger federal government was not adopted, if the states were left as a loose confederation under the Articles of Confederation, or if they went on their own ways, they were likely to be subjected to foreign intrigue, if not downright invasion. On the floor of the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph gave a gloomy prognostication if the Constitution was defeated. Our very quiet depends upon the duration of the Union. Among the upright and intelligent, few can read without emotion the future fate of the states if severed from each other. Then shall we learn the full weight of foreign intrigue. Then shall we hear of partitions of our country. If a prince, inflamed by the lust of conquest, should use one state as the instrument of enslaving others, if every state is to be wearied by perpetual alarms and compelled to maintain large military establishments, if all questions are to be decided by an appeal to armies where a difference of opinion cannot be removed by negotiation, in a word, if all the direful misfortunes which haunt the peace of rival nations are to triumph over the land, for what have we contended? Why have we exhausted our wealth? Why have we basely betrayed the heroic martyrs of the federal cause? James Madison concurred. In the Federalist Papers, he wrote that a united America will deter any foreign power from attempting an invasion. America was too strong when united to fear from foreign intervention or meddling. This was especially so since it was so far from Europe and the states together had a massive land mass and population. But history proved that if a division between the states were to occur, the division would entice foreign enemies to intervene and could very well destroy American liberty and independence. A dangerous establishment of foreign powers can never be necessary or plausible so long as the United States continue a united people. But let it never for a moment be forgotten that they are indebted for this advantage to the Union alone. The moment of its dissolution will beg death of a new order of things. The fears of the weaker 
or the ambition of the strong states or confederacies will set the same example in the new as Charles VII did in the old world. The example will be followed here from the same motives which produced universal imitation there. Instead of deriving from our situation the precious advantage which Great Britain has derived from hers, the face of America will be but a copy of that of the continent of Europe. It will present liberty everywhere, crushed between standing armies and perpetual taxes. Further, without a strong union, the war debts from the American Revolution would not be paid, and that debt would prevent the financing of a navy and army to fend off foreign attacks. The Congress did not even have enough money to pay all the interest due and owing on the war debt, never mind the principal. This could open up America to naval harassment, the burning of towns, and invasion. And this was no idle threat. Hugh Williamson was a delegate at the Constitutional Convention from North Carolina. He was a physician by trade and later founded a mercantile business. Before the American Revolution, he dabbled in electricity with Benjamin Franklin. He provided the first official report of the Boston Tea Party in England, which he had witnessed firsthand. He was personally examined by Prime Minister Lord Dartmouth and his Privy Council. He served as the Surgeon General for North Carolina's troops from 1779 to 1782. He urged inoculation to smallpox and served in the North Carolina House of Commons, the Continental Congress, the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, and, after ratification, the United States House of Representatives. He also wrote a history of North Carolina and wrote on the climate of his state. On November 8, 1787, he gave a riveting speech in Edenton, North Carolina, in which, among other things, he made the clear case for adopting the federal constitution as the means for providing a common defense. Let us consider the present condition of the United States. Without money, no government can be supported, and Congress can raise no money under the present constitution. They have not the power to make commercial treaties because they cannot preserve them when made. Hence it is that we are the prey of every nation. Those who are called the patriots were our friends, and they are oppressed in their turn by hosts of enemies. They will soon have need of money. At this hour, we are not able to pay the interest of their loan. What is to be done? You have four or five hundred troops scattered along the Ohio to protect the frontier inhabitants. Those troops are ill-paid and on their way to being disbanded. There is hardly a circumstance remaining, hardly one external mark by which you can deserve to be called a nation. You are not in a condition to resist the most contemptible enemy. What is there to prevent an Algerian pirate from landing on your coast and carrying your citizens into slavery? You have not a single sloop of war. One of the states attempts to raise a little money by imposts or other commercial regulations. A neighboring state immediately alters her laws and defeats the revenue by throwing a trade into a different channel. Instead of supporting or assisting, 
we are uniformly taking the advantage of one another. Such an assemblage of people are not a nation. Like a dark cloud, without cohesion or firmness, we are ready to be torn asunder and scattered abroad at every breeze of external violence or internal commotion. James Madison made similar arguments at the Virginia Ratifying Convention and explained that if there is no viable United States, each state could be invaded and picked off one after another. Without an overarching federal government, states would hold back their militias and other troops if a foreign power invaded. A divided America would be an easily conquered America. The adage, united we stand, divided we fall, applied in spades. Only by uniting the military forces of the United States could the common defense and public safety be ensured. Under the Articles of Confederation, there supposedly was a union to protect all the states. However, to create a navy and army, the Congress had to issue requisitions to the states. And that's a fancy way of saying the Congress told the states what they were supposed to provide for the common defense, and then the states were supposed to provide the requested supplies, men, and money. But there was no enforcement mechanism. Taxes could not be levied on the people, and without the cooperation of the states, no navy or army could be supplied and funded. It was, quite frankly, a mockery. Alexander Hamilton explained it this way in the Federalist Papers. The principal purpose to be answered by union are these, the common defense of the members, the preservation of the public peace, as well as against internal convulsions as external attacks. The experiment of the Articles of Confederation has demonstrated that this expectation that the requisitions would work was ill-founded and illusory. Experience shows that there is an absolute necessity for an entire change in the first principles of the system, that if we are in earnest about giving the Union energy and duration, we must abandon the vain project of legislation upon the state's in their collective capacities. We must extend the laws of the federal government to the individual citizens of America. We must discard the fallacious scheme of quota and requisitions as equally impracticable and unjust. The result from all this is that the Union ought be invested with the full power to levy troops, to build and equip fleets, and to raise revenues, which will be required for the formation and support of an army and navy in the customary and ordinary modes practiced in other governments. The Constitution would remedy the glaring defects of the Articles of Confederation. An army and navy could be raised and fully funded. They would be governed by a federal government that would deploy them with vigor and with an overarching strategy and tactics to provide for the common defense. Foreign nations would be forced to reckon with a continental republic that had already defeated the British Empire with a much weaker central authority. The next purpose of the Constitution outlined in the preamble was promote the general welfare. In connection with this purpose, we must remember that the preamble has no independent authority. That is, it does not confer powers upon the federal government it is just an explanation of why the Constitution was being adopted. The Supreme Court has long ago affirmed that basic understanding. So, 
Despite this seemingly broad language, it is simply explaining one of the reasons the Constitution is being adopted. The general welfare had a meaning very different than you might think of today. Because of FDR's New Deal and Lyndon Bain Johnson's Great Society, when our modern ear hears welfare, we tend to think of the welfare state. That is, entitlements for the less fortunate, like Medicaid, Supplemental Security Income, that is SSI, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that is SNAP, Child's Health Insurance Program, that's CHIP, the Earned Income Tax Credit, that is EITC, and all the other alphabet soup of government assistance programs. With the exception of Thomas Paine, the redistribution of property and the creation of a social safety net never entered the minds of the Founding Fathers. Since Paine was not at the convention or any ratifying convention, his opinion is immaterial. The meaning of welfare in the Constitution, as understood by the drafters and ratifiers, was simply prosperity, success, and happiness. That's pretty much Samuel Johnson's 1770 dictionary definition. So, the idea in the preamble was that a purpose of the Constitution was for the entire country to have happiness, success, and prosperity. This particular phrase received little attention from the framers and even its opponents. Pennsylvania Constitutional Convention delegate James Wilson later explained in an influential series of legal lectures that specific provisions of the Constitution further this general purpose. The national government was intended to promote the general welfare. For this reason, Congress had the power to regulate commerce with the Indians and foreign nations and to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for a time to authors and inventors an exclusive right to their compositions and discoveries. In other words, the happiness, prosperity, and success of the country as a whole would be furthered by regulating commerce and establishing patent and trademark law. Those specific powers are delineated in the Article I of the Constitution as powers of Congress. Wilson was simply explaining how the preamble took note of why those specific authorities were necessary. We have already explained in prior episodes that trade wars between the states were disastrous. And in fact, the economy was in terrible shape and inflation was rampant and destructive. Regulating commerce would unify the nation, eliminate trade wars, and hopefully thereby stabilize the monetary supply. Likewise, granting patents and copyrights was vital to the development of intellectual property, the very lifeblood of scientific development, literary excellence, and political debate. Still, one particularly insightful anti-federalist, Robert Yates, balked. Yates was a constitutional convention delegate from New York who walked out of the convention and refused to sign the Constitution. Instead, he wrote a series of essays under the pen name Brutus. He directly attacked the preamble as something that could be latched onto by the federal courts to expand their own authority. If the end of the government is to be learned from these words of the preamble, which are clearly designed to declare it, it is obvious it has in view every object which is embraced by any government. The preservation of internal peace, the due administration of justice, and to provide for the defense of the community seems to include all the objects of government. But if they do not, they are certainly comprehended in the words to provide for the common welfare. 
the general end of the Constitution, if it is to be collected from the preamble in which its end is declared, is to constitute a government which is to extend to every case for which any government is instituted, whether external or internal. The courts, therefore, will establish this as a principle in expounding the Constitution and will give every part of it such an explanation as will give latitude to every department under it to take cognizance of every matter, not only that affects the general and national concerns of the Union, but also of such as relate to the administration of private justice and to regulating the internal and local affairs of the different parts. In other words, Yates was exceedingly concerned that the preamble's reference to general welfare would be used as ammunition for the federal courts to expansively interpret the powers of the Congress to be almost completely unlimited, since almost anything could be argued to be for the general welfare. However, as noted in a prior episode, the Supreme Court has rejected this interpretation. And in fact, Congress has never enacted a law simply by relying on the preamble. In fact, some argue that because the preamble refers to the general welfare, that only laws that apply to the entire nation should be passed. In other words, it is a restraint on federal authority, not a grant of power. Accordingly, a canal that was just in one state or a road project that targeted just a few areas would not be permissible because they would not be for the general welfare. Hamilton believed that this was a defect that should be corrected by a constitutional amendment. After ratification, Madison came to believe that the Constitution did not authorize such limited internal improvements, and in fact, President James Madison vetoed such a project, and internal improvements bill, in part for just such a reason. Yes, there was a time that the president decided to exercise a veto because he believed the law was unconstitutional. He didn't just punt the issue to the Supreme Court, and he actually vetoed a bill that would have made him very popular, at least in one part of the country. Amazing! Of course, it was James Madison, father of the Constitution. Amazing indeed, bombastic Brent Bassett. The last purpose identified in the preamble is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This phrase echoes the Declaration of Independence self-evident truth, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Again, Thomas Jefferson's eloquence and clear insight are missed at the Constitutional Convention. Governor Morris's preamble was a little like a summary of why the Constitution was being adopted, in an almost tactician's instruction book kind of way, while Jefferson's soaring words enlivened the soul. One quick note on the word blessings. Specific references to the Creator, Nature Nature's God, Supreme Judge of the World, and Divine Providence were woven throughout the Declaration of Independence. These specific references were absent in the Constitution. Still, the idea that the Almighty existed and was vitally important is obviously inherent in the word blessings. The Founding Fathers understood that only a higher being can provide a blessing. In any event, Governor Morris did hit the right note. Contrary to the many cynics who now claim that the Constitution was just a clever way to reinforce a self-serving patriarchy, to perpetuate slavery, or an attempt to build a capitalist nightmare to keep the lower classes beaten down, the framers repeatedly focused on the best method of preserving liberty. 
No one in the Constitutional Convention was advocating maintaining an elite, hereditary, ruling class that would lower over the rabble. America would be a republic dedicated to preserving the unalienable rights of the people. True enough, the Constitution did not liberate the slaves, enfranchise women, or even provide the vote to non-land-owning men. But for its time, it was the freest system to ever exist on the face of the globe. All the progress that has happened afterward was enabled by the Constitution. Federalists and Anti-Federalists alike were entirely focused on creating a system of government that would best secure the blessings of liberty. For example, James Iredell, a key leader of the Federalists in North Carolina and a future United States Supreme Court Justice, explained that The passion for liberty is stronger in America than in any other country in the world. Here, every man is strongly impressed with its importance, and every breast glows for the preservation of it. Every jealousy not incompatible with the indispensable principles of government is undoubtedly to be commended. Likewise, James Wilson reflected that the Constitution embodied the Declaration's pronouncement that the whole point of government was to protect the unalienable rights of the people. Government should be formed to secure and to enlarge the exercise of the natural rights of its members. And every government which has not this in view as its principal object is not a government of the legitimate kind. The issue to be joined was whether the Articles of Confederation or the new Constitution would best protect liberty. One anonymous writer, known to the ages as the Republican to the People, published a pamphlet in Hartford, Connecticut, laying out that issue quite vividly and framing the entire debate between the Federalist and Anti-Federalist. It is generally agreed that the old Articles of Confederation are inadequate to answer the great national purposes for which they were designed. It is likewise generally agreed that the new Constitution is better adapted to answer the great purposes. All the objections which are made against it are reducible to this single one, that it is dangerous to liberty. Say the opposers of it, if we adopt it, our liberties have no security. If this objection be well founded, if the new constitution does destroy the safeguards of that liberty for which American blood and treasure has been lavished, let us exert every nerve to oppose it. God forbid that we, my countrymen, who have maintained our liberties in spite of the seducting artifices, the hostile arms, and the horrid cruelties which Britain has called into action for the purposes of enslaving us, should now through our folly surrender these precious rights which God and nature have given to men. But, on the other hand, if those patriotic citizens whom we have chosen from among us for their knowledge of government, love of liberty, and love of their country, have formed a plan of government which, without endangering our liberties, is calculated to render us a great, respectable, and happy nation, let us not, through folly and ill-directed jealousy, reject this, which is probably the only system of promoting our national felicity, which we shall ever have an opportunity of adopting. Of course, the Federalists argued that liberty was threatened under the Articles of Confederation and only creating a stronger federal government as envisioned in the Constitution could liberty be secure. 
Now, it might seem paradoxical that the proponents of a stronger federal government were arguing that such a move would better protect liberty. Generally, stronger governments are considered to threaten liberty, not protect it. However, the Federalists argued that the states had run amok. They had destroyed property rights by enacting debtor relief legislation that undermined or all but voided contracts between debtors and creditors. Courthouses had been ransacked to stop creditors from obtaining judgments they otherwise should be entitled to. Paper money was issued carelessly, creating intense inflation, and mob rule had threatened to take down all the people's liberties. The Congress was powerless to protect the inalienable rights of the people under the Articles of Confederation. The Federalists, especially Hamilton, explained that giving power and energy to the federal government would paradoxically better protect liberty from mob rule. Oliver Ellsworth was a delegate from Connecticut. Beginning his public service as the state attorney for Hartford County, Connecticut, he served in the Continental Congress for nearly the entire American Revolution. He was a state judge during the 1780s. He played a vital role in the Constitutional Convention and strongly supported the Constitution's ratification in Connecticut. He was in the first class of United States Senators under the Constitution. In that role, he was the chief author of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which drew up the broad parameters of the federal judiciary, much of which is still in effect today. And then he became Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And as if that wasn't enough, he also served as an envoy to France, helping broker peace to end hostilities in the quasi-war with France. Writing under the pen name A Landholder, he wrote a small set of papers advocating for the adoption of the Constitution. In one paper, he declared the Constitution would be a far better security to liberty than the passions of the mob that were ruling under the Articles of Confederation. Many defects of the Constitution had better be risked than to fall back into that state of rude violence in which every man's hand is against his neighbor, and there is no judge to decide between them or power of justice to control. But we hope to show that there are no such alarming defects in the proposed structure of government, and that while a public force is created, the liberties of the people have every possible guard. In another paper, Ellsworth elaborated that the wisdom of the ages, as well as the experience of the Americans, right then and there, revealed that a two-week government was a bane to liberty. Unless enough force and energy was vested in the government, the idea of the social compact would be rendered null and void. As explained in the Declaration of Independence, the whole idea of the first principle of the social compact was that the people banded together to create a government to protect their unalienable rights. But to work, the government actually had to have the power to protect the rights of the people from foreign invasion and from their neighbors. Those who opposed giving the government sufficient power were doing so out of a self-interested licentiousness. That is, they wanted to abuse their liberties for hedonistic, greedy, prideful ambitions. They didn't want a government that could check their selfish desires. Liberty is a word which, according to how it's used, comprehends the most good and the most evil of any in the world. Justly understood, it is sacred next to those which we appropriate in divine adoration. But, in the mouth of some, it means anything which will enervate a necessary government, excite a jealousy of the rulers who are our own choice, and keep a society in confusion for want of a power sufficiently concentrated to promote its good. 
It is not strange that the licentious should tell us a government of energy is inconsistent with liberty. For being inconsistent with their wishes and their vices, they would have us think it contrary to human happiness. But our experience after the revolution has created a general conviction that an internal government of strength is the only means of repressing external violence and preserving the national rights of the people against the injustice of their own brethren. Even the common duties of humanity will gradually go out of use when the constitution and laws of a country do not ensure justice from the public and between individuals. American experience in our present deranged state hath again proved these great truths, which have been verified in every age since men were made and became sufficiently numerous to form into public bodies. A government capable of controlling the whole and bringing its force to a point is one of the prerequisites for national liberty. We combine in society with an expectation to have our persons and properties defended against unreasonable exactions either at home or abroad. If the public are unable to protect us against the unjust impositions of foreigners, in this case we do not enjoy our natural rights, and a weakness in government is the cause. If we mean to have our natural rights and properties protected, we must first create a power which is able to do it. And in our case, there is no want of resources, but only a civil constitution which may draw them out and point their force. In fact, the founders were well aware that history revealed that a weak government could lead to tyranny just as much as giving too much power to one person. If a government could not protect the people, it could very well collapse and the people would then seek a savior, a knight on a white horse, who would restore order and security and likely become a tyrant. Ancient history was full of such dismal tales. In essence, the entire debate over the Constitution boiled down to this, whether it properly balanced liberty and order. If the Articles of Confederation were too weak to preserve unalienable rights, was the Constitution too strong to protect them? Constitutional Delegate and Connecticut Governor Samuel Huntington put it this way, It is an established truth that no nation can exist without a coercive power, a power to enforce the execution of its political regulations. There is no such love of liberty implanted in the human breast that no nation ever willingly gave up its liberty. If they lose this inestimable birthright of man, it is from a want not of will, but of, of a proper mean to support it. If we look into history, we shall find that the common avenue through which tyranny has entered in and enslaved nations who were once free has been their not supporting government. The great secret of preserving liberty is to lodge the supreme power so as to be well supported and not abused. If this could only be effected, no nation would ever lose its liberty. The history of mankind clearly shows that it is dangerous to entrust the supreme power in the hands of one man. The same source of knowledge proves that it's not only inconvenient, 
but dangerous to liberty for the people of a large community to attempt to exercise in person the supreme authority. Hence arises the necessity that the people should act by their representatives. The clash within the founding generation was whether the Constitution struck the delicate balance necessary to preserve liberty. There is a scientific hypothesis sometimes referred to as the Goldilocks zone. This is the zone in which a planet must be in to maintain life. Too close to a star and water boils away. Too far and it's ice. And there are so many other conditions necessary for life to form, like a solid planet, oxygen, a protective atmosphere to stop radiation, plentiful water, amino acids, etc., etc. Earth is in the Goldilocks zone, the only planet we know of. In a parallel fashion, the founders were searching for a form of government that was exactly in the right spot for liberty to thrive. Too much power, it would be a tyranny. Too little power, it would be an anarchy, and then likely tyranny. The Republican to the people determined that the Constitutional Convention had found the Goldilocks zone, and he waxed eloquently, clearly reflecting the sentiments of many of his fellow Federalists. The President of the United States is to be appointed in a manner which is wisely adapted to concentrate the general voice of the people. He is an officer appointed by the people. If he wishes to be appointed again, he depends upon the people. He therefore will be the guardian of the liberties of the people. The President, the Senate, the Representatives are all chosen by the people. They form a triple wall around our liberties. In short, the Constitution breathes the spirit of liberty. The people breathe the spirit of liberty. The state legislatures will still possess extensive powers. They will have great influence upon the general government. We ought to presume they will be faithful to the people. Their influence will therefore be in favor of liberty. We possess advantages superior to those of any other people to maintain our liberty. Therefore, if we adopt the new constitution, if we will act like rational free men and choose men of abilities and integrity to carry this plan of government into execution, we may with reason expect that our liberties and privileges will endure as long as is consistent with the instability of all human affairs. The optimism of the Republican to the people won out. The preamble also refers to securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. Posterity, of course, are the descendants of the people. The remainder of the preamble provides that the people of the United States do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, I have a confession. A few times I mentioned that the preamble is just an explanation and has no governing force. But this last provision is the exception to the rule. It provides that the document, the Constitution, was becoming legally effective. This is often referred to as an enactment clause. Of course, the Constitution only has legal effect because 19 states ratified it later. So it's really just kind of an explanation, kind of. You know what I mean. 
We have finally covered the entirety of the preamble, but let's take a step back and look at it as a whole. The Anti-Federalists certainly did, and in their view, the preamble was so broad and so extensive that it revealed that the Constitutional Convention was attempting to subvert and abolish the states. Viewing the rest of the Constitution with this gloss blew out any pretense that the federal government was to be limited, Brutus explained in his twelfth paper. I might proceed to the other clause in the preamble, and it would appear by consideration of all of them separately, as it does by taking them together, that if the spirit of the system is to be known by its declared end and designed in the preamble, its spirit is to subvert and abolish all the powers of the state government and to embrace every object to which any government extends. As it sets out in the preamble with this declared intention, so it proceeds in the different parts with the same idea. Any person who will peruse Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution with attention, in which most of the powers are enumerated, will perceive that they either expressly or by implication extend to almost everything about which any legislative power can be employed. But if this equitable mode of construction is applied to this part of the Constitution, nothing can stand before it. This will certainly give the first clause in that article a construction which I confess I think the most natural and grammatically correct one, to authorize the Congress to do anything which in their judgment will tend to provide for the general welfare. And this amounts to the same thing as general and unlimited powers of legislation in all cases. Whoa, 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 Judge! Uh, now why did I do that? <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to whoa, whoa, whoa the judge this episode. Uh, you may carry on. Thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett. I think we know that Brutus was a remarkable writer, but his position did not prevail. Some key takeaways from this episode. Under the Articles of Confederation, the states were threatened with economic chaos, internal turmoil, insurrection, trade wars, and competing foreign policies. By uniting the states, the Constitution provided for the common defense by creating a federal government strong enough to stop invasions and foreign interference in the United States. The Constitution was drafted to promote the general welfare by giving it the authority to address national economic problems and by authorizing Congress to issue copyrights and patents. By creating a government not so weak as to fall apart into anarchy and not too strong to become oppressive, the Constitution was intended to secure the blessings of liberty for all Americans. The Constitution also explained that upon ratification, the Constitution would be legally binding. Please join us next time when we begin our review of Article 1 and the Congress. I am Oakland County, Michigan Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit PatriotWeek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great Patriots, and flags from our history along with all the other fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. 
please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.